Good morning. I feel like we're missing a couple of rows up here. <laughs> They're trying to keep us on our toes. Every week they sort of uh, set the room up a little differently. Um, feel so far away. You feel so far away. Um, gosh. Funny how just a little bit of difference uh, feels like a lot of... It doesn't help we've got like empty roads, three empty roads up here too, you know, so it makes the distance feel even farther. Thank you, Tom, for sort of bridging the gap here. Uh, well, the podium was against the wall. I know. I've actually moved it up four feet earlier. I mean, uh, I'm asking to put it on rollers, so maybe each week I can kind of get closer. Um, somebody asked me why I was wearing this color. It was my attempt to be in solidarity with those who were mourning. Um, you do what you can, right? Small gestures sometimes make a difference. So, uh, yeah, it's not Clemson orange. It's definitely UT, although it could be just as easily. Hope you've had a good week. Um, thank you. Just want to say before I forget, um, thanks to you, those of you who prayed for our son, Andrew, who traveled to South America for the next three months. He didn't make it. And he remembered to tell us that he made it. Um, thank God for that. I know it took him a day or so. Um, but uh, he did make it. And uh, he's there. He's been checking in every day or two. So um, we're grateful for that. So we're in the creed. Um, we're in the second article of the creed, which is about, uh, which is about Jesus. Um, you recall, we've... we've covered a lot of territory. Somebody asked me just a little while ago, like, how long have we been on this? And somebody said, only two or three weeks. I thought, I'm really glad it feels that way because I think we've been on it, you know, like six. So I worry when somebody says, how long has it been? It's like, I don't know, six months or something um, when it's been like three weeks. So no, it's, it's always good to, so I'm glad it doesn't feel like we've been on there forever because we've got a little ways to go. Um, so just to remind ourselves a little bit where we've been, right? So we, we talked about, you know, that this is a confession, that the, the creed is not some dry, dusty piece of theology, uh, but it's a confession. It's a, a kind of pledge of allegiance. We are saying that this is, this is the one in whom we place our ultimate trust. And, and we do this publicly. It's one of the reasons why uh, we don't just, you know, the, the church didn't write these creeds and then set them uh, on a shelf somewhere, but we regularly, hopefully, uh, are encouraged to, to stand and recite or read or remember, if you, if you have it uh, in, your, in your bones somewhere, recite this together. So we often recite them uh, at baptisms, these, these critical times of, the, of our gatherings, uh, baptisms and, and the Eucharist, the Lord's table, and funerals, um, and other really powerful times when we need to be reminded where our ultimate trust is. And so this is this notion that we believe, we, we trust in this very particular God, right? The Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. 
and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And we didn't, we could have, but I thought if I... If, if we'd have taken a week on the and, I thought no one would come back. Um, but we could have. I mean, maybe we should have. Um, so let me just say a couple of things about that and, because it, it is a little shocking um, if you're not been initiated into the Christian faith. I mean, here you announce that you believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and. Like, what do you mean, And. You just said you believed in God. How can there be an and after that? Well, that's, that's the heart of the Christian faith, right? Is this, that we confess belief in this, this triune God, this ultimate mystery, which is indeed a scandal. And it is, it is a challenge. Um, I mean, who can explain uh, in ways that are satisfying uh, the mystery of the triune God. Uh, but that and, that we believe not only, we confess our faith not only in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, but in, and in Jesus Christ, right? And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And so, and we've reminded ourselves that this, this God isn't any God, it's the God who is the Father of Jesus Christ and the Father of us all, right? Um, and that that Almighty, as we'll be reminded again today, because one of the things about this creed is um, almost every single word in the creed is informed by every other word in the creed. And so you only go through it sort of linearly, which is what we're doing, but every time we come to a word, we realize it's informed by what comes before and what comes after. That's why we're taking our time. It's hopefully so. Um, I'm hoping that the next time you are asked to stand and recite this creed in a worship service, it, it, will, it will have a kind of weight to it uh, that maybe it hasn't had for a while, maybe ever, uh, because you just really haven't been encouraged to think about what it is that we're actually standing and affirming together, confessing together, bearing witness to together. So this God the Father Almighty isn't just the God of, of any old power. Right? It's just not the, we're not confessing that we believe in God the power guy. Uh, but we, we confess that we trust in this God who has revealed God's self to be the power of love. A love which God has promised will bring to fruition all that God desires. And we know what God's desires are because God has revealed those desires to us. And that is that we be renewed, restored, recreated into the image of this one that we confess in the second article. Right? The Apostle Paul says that God's great desire is that we all be conformed, reformed into the image of Christ. That's what God wants for us. God wants us to radiate the glory of God in the way that Jesus radiated the glory of God. And most days, if you're like me, um, I don't feel very radiant. Um, there's a lot about the, the world that, um, yeah, it just, uh, the image of God in us, in us has, been, has been tarnished, right? 
But God is in this great restoration project in and through, in, through Jesus. And it's through the power, the transforming, transfiguring power of God's love that we will be brought to completion, Scripture promises us. And that God's the maker of everything, right? And that God creates, not out of necessity. Um, I mean, the story, I mean, the beautiful story that we tell uh, in the Christian uh, confession is not like some of the ancient uh, origin uh, stories and myths where um, you know, one of the great Babylonian myths um, uh, that the world was created by a god who um, there was this great battle between the gods and they, they carved up the body and used the, the leftover pieces of that to create the world. Right? Uh, that somehow the, the, the earth is the, the residue of these ancient divine wars. The Christian confession is that God creates, out, not out of necessity, but this triune God, this God who is eternally communion of love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That God creates out of the overflow of that abundant love. That, 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 that God desires that that love not just be contained within the divine life, but there's a divine overflow of that. So God creates that which can be the recipient of God's love and be drawn into this divine communion of love. And we know this because of what we're confessing in the second article of the Creed that follows this and. And that's why we are bold to say and, right? Uh, which again is a scandal. It's why a lot of people have trouble with the Christian faith is because it looks like even though we confess, like the Jews, that there is one God, when you start adding ands, it looks like you got more than one. Right? And so, um, and today we, we come to that. We come to that. We come to the two phrases, you know, His only Son, our Lord. So today we want to talk just for a little bit about what are we confessing about Jesus Christ? That was last week. Uh, we talked about the humanity of Jesus, right? Um, that somehow this part of the scandal of Jesus is that we want to say that somehow God is revealed definitively in this human being who lived in a certain place at a dateable time and place. How is that possible? How is that possible? What does it mean that the that the world has been forever transformed because of a person who was born in an out-of-the-way place, right, to an obscure family, right? How, how did that change the world? And how does that reveal God? So much so that we want to say that this Jesus, who is fully human, is also the fullest expression of God that humans have ever experienced or ever hoped to experience. And this is part of what's being expressed in this notion of God's only Son. Right. So let's talk about that. I mean, clearly, 
in the history of religions and human thought, um, Jesus wasn't the first one to be called the Son of God, right? Um, so it wasn't like people thought, well, when he was announced as Son of God, or people believed that he was a Son of God, people thought, I don't even know what that means. But there was a couple different reference points, and actually these are in tension in, in the scriptures, we'll see. Um, you recall from your you know, world civilization class that you took a few years ago, um, that the, uh, you know, the, the ancient e Egyptians, right? The pharaohs were considered to be sons of the sun god, right? That was just standard fare. Um, so it's, it hasn't been unusual that leaders were considered to be uh, the son of God. And certainly this is in the air when Jesus is born. Uh, this, the, the Romans, uh, the Roman emperors, um, were often called, right, the son of God and Lord. Interesting, both things that we are talking about today. And so this notion that in the air, that there was this notion, but it's also the case, um, it's also the case that uh, even, you didn't even have to be uh, in, the, in Roman society, you could be considered a son of God if you were a, a, considered to be a, a kind of divine miracle worker. Um, you could be a son of God. Um, you were a kind of instrument of the divine uh, wonder working. And it's interesting that, that Jesus himself looks like in the temptation narratives is being challenged to consider what kind of son of God he is. Right? Uh, remember what in, say, Matthew 4, when, um, when Jesus is being tempted, right? It's like, if you are the son of God, take these stones and turn them into bread. Right? He's being, he's being challenged to be a wonder worker, right? To be that kind of son of God who, who is known to be a wonder worker. Or if you, if you are the son of God, you know, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple and allow uh, the angels to protect you. Do something flashy, Jesus. Show yourself to be a son of God. So there's that sort of understanding of Son of God which Jesus actually rejects for the most part, right? Not to say he's not going to do miracles, but it, it reminds us that maybe he wants to be understood as a miracle worker in a different way. Because the other tradition of the Son of God is not the sort of uh, Egyptian, Greek, Roman Son of God, but it's the, the notion of Son of God um, from the Hebrew tradition, which Jesus, being a Jew, would have inherited. And you'll recall there's a number of places in the Old Testament where God identifies Israel as God's son. Right? Um, places like in the book of Exodus where, where God says things uh, such as, I have, um, where, where God calls Israel Israel is my, is my firstborn son, 
Um, or God says, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Which when we hear that, we think of the New Testament quotation of that about Jesus, right? But in its original context, it's about God calling Israel out of Egypt, right? When they were in bondage to Egypt. That gets repurposed for Jesus, appropriately. But originally, when God says, out of Egypt, I have called my son, is about God seeing Israel as God's son. And then that famous uh, passage from Psalm 2, um, which also um, gets reappropriated in the New Testament in reference to Jesus, right? This is the, this is the passage that says, uh, you are my son, today I have begotten you, right? Um, this notion that even, even the ancient, this is kind of a royal psalm, that even the, the ancient kings of, of uh, Israel who were standing in for the people of Israel were understood at, in some way to be son of God. And what the, the Hebrew notion was, was that the son of God was a kind of, was on a, was a, a commissioned for a mission Right? Israel was God's son, firstborn son, because God chose Israel to be on a mission, to be a light to the nations. They weren't called by God because they were special. God didn't call them the firstborn son because they somehow um, were better than all the other nations. They were called for a purpose, for a mission. That's what it meant to be the Son of God. They had a mission. They were to be a light to the nations. They were to be the people through whom God would bless all the nations of the world, which was the covenant that God made with Abraham. Right? So it, it's that notion. And so the question is, when Jesus comes and is, over time, recognized, okay, it takes time right, for people to to name this of, of Jesus, that it's Jesus isn't just the powerful ruler or, or even the miracle worker. Right? Um, Jesus has a kind of um, uneasy relationship with working miracles. <laughs> right? You'll recall that at one point when he feeds the 5,000, which is one of the story, story you'll hear in worship today, Right? In one of the accounts, it's really clear that after he's done that, the people, the people rise up and try, it says, Scripture says, they want to make him king. Right? Now we're back to that other kind of son of God. They want to make him that kind. They want to make him, you know, I mean, who wouldn't want that? I mean, we live in a world where Every day, people go hungry. Who wouldn't want to be the, the person in charge, to be the person who could feed everybody? Would that be such a bad thing, Jesus? That's not. But Jesus kind of slips away, right? Doesn't allow them to do that. Um, and so, Jesus is Son of God in the sense that, one, he's on this mission. He's been commissioned. 
to be the agent of God's restoring work. And as we know, that's going to be a mission that entails suffering on his part. Right? It is. And so it's not the, the king, the power, the glory. It's, it's going to be the one who has to humble himself, even unto death. So that this is this is the Son of God. And so there's a, there's a couple dimensions here. I mean, certainly in affirming that Jesus is the Son of God. Love the train, of course. Here we go. There's a kind of interior dimension to it. And what I mean by that is, pausing just briefly. We do want to affirm that in calling Jesus the, the Son of God, His only Son, our Lord, right? That Jesus does have this unique relationship to the Father. I mean, the, the reason the Father is called the Father is because He is the Father of this Son, right? Um, and the reason this Son is called the Son is because He's in some special relationship with the Father. So that's absolutely central to who we are. Um, and it's, it's what made it possible for people to consider Jesus to be not only fully God, but also, it's not only fully human, but also fully God. Because what people are saying is, in, in experiencing Jesus, people saw the face of God. In a way, quite like no other. This is, this is the experience of the early church. Now it was true that people knew that everyone had been created in the, in the image of God, but then our image is tarnished. I mean, I, I wish by the grace of God when people saw me and saw you, all they would see was the glory of God in whose image we are made. But they often see something far less in me than that. And maybe in you too. And yet when they met Jesus, they had this deep and abiding sense that they had come face to face with God. That's an extraordinary thing that somehow in this very human person they had drawn near to the one who had drawn near to them. And so he has this special relationship with God. He speaks about it. He calls God Father. Right? In a way that clearly people heard and were upset by. A lot of the Jewish authorities did not like the way in which Jesus seemed to be a little too intimate with the one he called 
Father. So there's this internal dimension of Jesus' identity that can't really be separated from the way that people experienced him, which is that somehow God had drawn near that in the face of Jesus, they saw the face of God. And that's part of what we're confessing when we confess that Jesus Christ is God's Son. But we're also confessing this, ex we can call it an external dimension, that we've already alluded to, and that is that Jesus is on mission. And it's a mission that that not only changes what people thought of Messiah, which we talked about last time, what it meant to be chosen and anointed by God, um, but it also changed what it meant to be Son of God. You know, go back to that, that famous passage in, in Philippians 2, that hymn that you hear so often. The reason you hear it so often and I think the reason we still have this hymn from the early church is because it so powerfully encapsulates this truth that this Son of God, this Messiah, is not just any Messiah, not any chosen one of God, not any Son of God, but a God who's on mission, drawing near to us, and as the Apostle Paul says, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And here's where the hymn begins. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But the hymn doesn't stop there, right? Because here, here's what made possible for the early church to confess that Jesus Christ really was the Son of God. It's what happens, not just at the cross, which reveals something critical about who this God is and who this Jesus is. But it goes on to say, therefore, Right? As a result of Jesus humbling himself, even to the point of death, therefore God also highly exalted him, gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's because precisely Jesus was faithful to his commission, right? Jesus was faithful and obedient to his commission, even to the point of death, that God exalts Jesus. God raises Jesus from the dead and gives him the name that is above every other name. It makes it possible for us to confess Jesus as Lord, not to his glory, but to the glory of God the Father. We've heard that passage so many times, it's easy to just kind of let it slip through. 
But again, just as we're not worshiping any old God worthy of the name, neither are we daring to give praise and thanksgiving and yes, even our worship to Jesus Christ, his only son. Because he was faithful and obedient to the commission that God gave to be humble and to suffer even to the point of death for our good, for our good. So love is not just some fuzzy feeling that God feels for us, God. God comes in the flesh. We encounter God in the flesh of this first century Jew. Where God has drawn near to us. And so we not only claim and confess that this Jesus, more so than anyone who's ever lived, or any one human being who ever will live, is rightly called Son of God, but also Lord. And here again, there's kind of this title of Lord sort of has two possibilities. Um, and it's sort of the same sort of axis. Um, Lord in that day could have just been polite address like sir but it, it often meant more than that um, as you know um, it was common in the Roman Emperor Empire to confess that Caesar was Lord which meant that Caesar calls the shots um, and we have plenty of evidence where early Christians got in trouble because they wouldn't say it. Okay. Um, we have a, a really powerful martyr story from uh, about one, it's second part of the second century AD, about a little over a hundred years after Jesus died. Um, one of the early church leaders named Polycarp. We have uh, an account of his martyrdom. And He's, he's being encouraged to say, look, don't make such a big deal out of this Caesar is Lord thing. Just say it. I mean, other people have other Lords as well. So this is just another one. You know, just, just say Caesar's Lord. There's no harm in saying that Caesar is Lord. Polycarp will not do it. Right? He won't do it because he thinks there really is only one Lord. Only one to whom you give your ultimate allegiance, and it's not Caesar. And so he's martyred, right? He, he would rather die than assume that Jesus' lordship is just one other kind of lordship among many. And he's not the only one. He's just one of the more dramatic stories that come down to us. But quite apart from that very real social 
context into which the early church finds itself, where the language of the Lord is being used, there is also this Old Testament notion of Lord, right? Um, you'll recall that in, your, in the Old Testament, um, Jason has taught you this well, I know, even though I wasn't here. Um, you recall that the, the Jews were very reticent to, to pronounce, to speak, to utter God's name, which we call Yahweh, roughly, right? Jews had such a reverence for God's name, they wouldn't even speak it. Um, and so when, when the, the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, uh, one of the words they used to substitute for this was Adonai, or Lord. Which is why, when you, this may be confusing to you if you've never picked up on this, when you read your Old Testament, sometimes the Lord is in all caps, in all small caps. If you're wondering why, that's typographically an attempt by the translators to say this is where the divine name was, right? That would have been Yahweh, right? Um, so it's not just talking about, sometimes it's just capital L, small O-R-D, right? And that just means a, a different kind of thing. You could have all kinds of lords, right? But when it's in all caps, that's an attempt to, in the English translation, uh, signal this was the divine name. And so Jesus, um, in, in a context where the, the uh, Greek Old Testament would have been uh, pretty widespread, um, people know that this is, this is the divine name. Um, this is one of the divine names, Lord. So it's not just, it's not just appropriated and used by the, the, the Roman Caesars. It's also, uh, to call someone Lord is also a claim on the divinity of God. So, you know, when Jesus is resurrected and one of the disciples sees him and says, my Lord and my God, right? Um, there's something really pregnant in what's being said there, right? That's, that's tapping into this identification of the God of Israel being the Lord, this very particular God. And again, given the story, this Lord isn't just any Lord. Right? This Lord is the one who is the Lord of love. The one who is so much love that, again, in the first epistle of John, the writer can say that this God is love. And those who love are born of God. This is an audacious claim. Right? What does any of this have to do with us? I mean, is this just something that we confess on occasion about what we believe in our heads about who God is? I hope not. I hope we've made it clear this is about our ultimate allegiance. Um, where do we give our ultimate loyalty? 
And what difference does that claim, that pledge of allegiance make on our daily lives? Well, we just made, made reference um, to this passage in 1 John chapter 4. Let me read it to you again. And he starts off by calling us beloved. Beloved, let us love one another. This is 4 verse 7. And again, it, it's so easy to, to skip over that word, beloved. We've talked about that word a lot in here. Um, it's, it's, the, it's the word that God announces at Jesus' baptism, right? You are my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. And John goes on to say, you know, we love because God's first loved us. Uh, we are the beloved ones, and, and God wants our belovedness to be part of our radiance, part of the glory of the image of God that people see in us is our sense of our own belovedness. Not that we've earned it, but that we are beloved of God. So it says, Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God. Right? Again, you can, you can kind of slip over that. Everyone who loves is born of God. Sounds like a claim about Right? Being part of the family of God. We're the children of God. God's love was revealed us among us in this way. God sent his only son, there it is, into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, there it is again, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. When I was young, um, one of my favorite jobs, you don't have too many favorite jobs when you're young, um, but there was one job in our household that um, I always wanted to volunteer to do. Um, and what it was, was my, my mother had about a dozen pieces of silver that belonged to her mother that over the course of the year would always get deeply tarnished. And she also had a silver platter that my parents received on their 25th wedding anniversary. And over the course of the year, it also would be badly tarnished. And so once a year, she would take them out and I would just beg her like, can I do it this time, right? And so she'd pull out the silver polish and get me a soft rag and she'd remind me how to do it the right way, right? I just thought it was amazing, right? It's so cool. Um, Partly because you could take something that looked so anything other than extraordinary, 
right? Just, just really, like who would care about these old, just, and of course if you didn't do it often enough, they'd be pitted, right? I mean, just pretty unremarkable pieces of silver. And after an hour, they would just radiate. I mean, they'd be extraordinary. Right? Um, and it occurred to me this week that that's really what we're called to. Right? Um, as I suggested earlier, the image of God in us has been badly tarnished. Um, but we catch glimpses of the image of God in each other. And our task is to be channels of God's transforming love. To make, to polish away a little bit of that, that impurity, that tarnish, so that we might radiate the love of God to the world. And you can do that in a thousand different ways. Right? Sometimes it's just offering someone a smile. Right? It may not be a person that you know. Right? Um, sometimes it's just trying to see the image of God in a person that you find it really hard to believe is made in the image of God. Right? And we all have people like that in our lives who are challenges. But we catch glimpses, don't we? I mean, it just happens, it just kind of catches, at least it catches me by surprise. I'll be standing somewhere, um, I'm going to embarrass Gail this morning, sorry. <laughs> no, it happened this morning in, in worship, we were just standing there singing and she slipped into the aisle next to me. And it happened, right, and it happens often when I'm in, in Eucharist. Uh, and you all, if I were in the same service, you're uh, walking as best you can uh, towards the front to hold out your hands. And I get this glimpse, right, of glory in you. That you are created in the image of God. What an extraordinary thing that is. And I get to stand next to you. That's crazy. It's beautiful. And what does it mean to honor that? What does it mean for me to try to honor that in some small way and be used by God in some small way to be that little bit of cloth that just makes you a little bit more radiant than you might have been? I mean, what a beautiful thing to, to be in the world. I mean, God, God could have just snapped the divine fingers and we'd all be polished up. But God doesn't seem to have any desire to do that. Instead, God has told, called us to be the ones who take great pleasure in loving one another in ways that begin to reveal who we really are. And that's what we're confessing when we stand up and say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, 
creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. We're confessing the authority of love. And I encourage you this week, in some small way, allow the authority of love to be at work in your life. Maybe just, just take one person this week. I just encourage you, take one person this week. It doesn't have to be a person that you find it hard to love. Don't, don't set the bar too high this week. Right? Just take one, just ask God. Have the courage. It does take courage. Have the courage to ask God. Each day you wake up this week, pray, let me Love this person a little more so that your glory, your image, will shine forth from them a little more brightly. And take great joy in being an instrument, just like I was when I was a kid. Like this, I mean, what's better than this, right? We get to be part. Just like Jesus was commissioned, we've been commissioned. This is our call. Let's pray. We are humbled, O oh God, that you have called us to this task, to this mission, this glorious mission of restoring, renewing all things. Give us the eyes to see your image in the people we meet, the people we engage with this week. And may we, by the power of your spirit, be used by you to love them in a way that their glory might radiate a little bit more brightly to your glory. We pray through Jesus Christ, your only Son, our Lord.